You're listening to the official podcast of Network for Advancing Athletes, where our mission is to mentor and empower women through sport. In addition to our mentorship programs, we created this podcast to bring you even more wisdom from remarkable women, athletes, coaches, directors, psychologists, managers, and more. You'll get diverse perspectives on sport through the eyes of amazing role models who are out there changing lives every day. Network for Advancing Athletes is a nonprofit organization, and you can support this podcast with tax-deductible donations through Patreon. That's patreon.com slash advancingathletes. And of course, you can learn more about us at our website, advancingathletes.org. I'm very pleased to introduce our next guest on the podcast, Catherine Bertin. If you follow women's professional road cycling, you've probably heard her name. For those who haven't, you should know this woman is a force of nature. (laughs) She has been an athlete in many forms throughout her life, but she's also an accomplished journalist, author, and documentary filmmaker. Her talent for captivating readers and audiences with real-world stories has enabled her not only to shine a light on the struggle and injustice that exists for women within sport, but also to affect real change. As a young woman, she was an NC2A D1 rower for Colgate and later a professional figure skater for the Ice Capades, Hollywood on Ice, and Holiday on Ice. She then transitioned to triathlon, competing in both ITU and Ironman distances. Along the way, she authored two books and worked as a journalist for ESPN. During her time with ESPN, she switched her focus to road cycling and eventually turned pro, racing a career that spanned four professional teams, six national titles for St. Kitts and Nevis, and three Caribbean championship titles. She continued to write, channeling her experiences and observations into her columns and books, and even created a documentary film highlighting the passion, intensity, and ongoing inequality she had experienced in women's professional cycling. Her film is called Half the Road, and if you haven't already, go see this film. It's funny and inspiring, and I guarantee it'll light a fire in you. Her strong sense of justice goes way beyond art, however, and she has affected some incredible changes for the sport through her activism. She founded La Tour Antillais with a group of fellow pros to advocate for parity in women's cycling, starting with the Tour de France. For those that don't know, there used to be a Tour de France women's race that took place alongside the men's race, but organizers did away with it for many years. Catherine's group applied enough pressure that they convinced the tour organizers to feature women again, which they have done with a one-day feature race at the end of the men's tour. Women cyclists continue to push for a long multi-day stage race commensurate with men's tour as this event constitutes the pinnacle of the sport of road cycling, as well as the most valuable platform for cycling sponsors. Catherine's group is key in this effort. But I digress. All of this is to say, Catherine Bertine has consistently and tirelessly set her sights and talents on making the world a better place, especially for women in sport. She's been there as an athlete and activist, and she shares her stories from the trenches with humor and style through her writing and filmmaking. In addition to her film Half the Road, she's also author of three books, All the Sundays Yet to Come, As Good as Gold, and The Road Less Taken. She recently retired from pro cycling, but she hasn't slowed down on the activism front. She's just recently launched a new initiative, the Homestretch Foundation, to help pro women endurance athletes pursue their athletic dreams. It's a brilliant idea, but I'll let her tell you more in the interview. As an athlete, I consider myself lucky to have Catherine in my corner, but I'm also thankful to call her a personal friend. We should all be so lucky to have someone with her integrity, grit, and humor on our side. With that, please welcome to the podcast, Catherine Bertin. Catherine, thanks for being here today. I am so happy to be here with you, Amber. Thanks for having me on the show. <laughs> oh, we are so <laughs> just stoked to see you, or I'm stoked to see you. Um, Catherine and I are actually here at the Homestretch Foundation in Tucson, Arizona. Um, I have already been able to benefit from the amazing amenities here, and Catherine, thank you so much for putting this together. I'd like to hear, well, I'm sure all of our listeners would really like to hear more about how this came to be and, and what it is. Oh, thank you. It's such a joy for me to have you here. 
here because you are amazing in this sport. You do so much for women's cycling and you're also my good friend. So (laughs) it's so great. It's so great. Uh, Okay. So how'd the home stretch start? Well, a few years ago, uh, let's say this was back in maybe 2011, 2012, when I first started seeing the reality of pro cycling. And I was, I was blown away at that point. Um, I lived in a house that had a spare bedroom and, and so we would take in, you know, a cyclist if they called up and said, Hey, you know, does anyone know of someone where I could stay for a while to do some training in Tucson? And I was more than happy to help somebody out, especially the female cyclists. And what blew my mind was that people who were contacting me to, you know, for the spare bedroom were professional cyclists of top ranked teams who were also national champions. Yeah. And they were looking for a place to stay because when you boil it down, there there wasn't an option where they could just rent a room or rent uh, a house or anything to complement their training. They didn't have the financial means to do that. And that's where I got the education that, like, oh, yes, of course, I want to help people, but this system's broken. How do we have professional athletes that can't afford a place to live? <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> or to come train for a month or even less or maybe a little bit more. It didn't make sense to me. So, you know, in the back of my head, I thought, huh, that's interesting. And then I got into that level of pro cycling and I saw very quickly how little women are paid in mm-hmm. this sport. The majority of them are paid less than $10,000, which is way below the poverty line. Right. <laughs> Especially right. in the U.S., let alone globally. Uh, And then fast forward a few years, and I actually found myself in the midst of a life change where I no longer had a place to live. And I was a professional cyclist. And, you know, thank God for great relatives who were like, okay, you know, my dad said, come stay with me as you get back on your feet. But what really started to permeate that idea and that thought was, wait a minute, you know, this also doesn't make sense that I'm at a top ranked level in professional cycling. And I don't have the means to support myself with a place to live. I can't be the only one. And if I am, that's great. (laughs) Maybe it's just all me. In a way. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Maybe I'm great for you, but, (laughs) but from that societal level, like, yeah, if it's just me, then, okay, I've always been a little weird. So maybe it is just me. But when I started doing that research and looking around, I'm like, wait, it's not just me. All of these women are being underpaid. And if a life situation of any sort comes up and they don't have a place to live, that's terrible. But what about the women who do have a place to live theoretically, but when it comes down to training, they, they're, you know, unable to support themselves in any, any regard. How do we fix that? So the idea for the home stretch came from those ideas kind of merging together. And I thought, how great would it be if I could find a residence that could sleep between anywhere from six to 10 female pro cyclists, or even elite cyclists that are just at that cusp of turning pro, right? Right. Um, And I know those financial burdens. So what if we can help by, you know, diffusing the cost and we can have the home stretch open and available where athletes could stay here for free once they're accepted by our application system, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We try to screen out any weirdos in life, right? (laughs) They'd have to be a lot weirder than me, you know, to... We we really appreciate (laughs) certain kinds of weird. Yeah, well, thank you. I hope I fall into that category. Um, but we do have an application system, you know, set in place there. Mm-hmm. But uh, once an athlete is accepted, they have anywhere from one month to six months to live here for free. Mm-hmm. And then the other side of the year, 
So let's, to put that into clarity, um, athletes can be in Tucson to live and train for free from basically January to June. Right. And then the other half of the calendar from June to December, that's when we have the home stretch open and available for a fee. So people can come in to, whether it's to rent or to run a camp or a clinic or a group, or maybe it's a vacation, whatever it is, when they use the home stretch as their, as their base, then being a tax deductible, you know, nonprofit, mm-hmm. they're providing the support that we can then empower the female cyclists to live here for free for the other half of the year. So right. it's kind of a win-win situation. For sure. That so way. let's back up just a minute. And you're talking about the application process. And yep. we all know that anybody who's in cycling is going to be a little bit weird, <laughs> no matter what. Granted. <laughs> Granted. <laughs> it's kind of a prerequisite for what we do. Yep. Um, but on the application process, is this something that is results oriented? Does it matter if you you, you know, does it matter where you are in your career? What are you guys looking for on the application? Such a great question. We are, we, we always want to hear how's your career going. Feel free to tell us about your results. It's always great to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we're really concentrating on is the fact that when you're here at the home stretch, one, you're going to live amongst other women. Are you the kind of person that can get along in that group environment where everybody's, you know, moving each other forward in a good way? Mm-hmm. Um, that's part of it. The other part really is about the ability to embrace the, what I call the inner give back. Yeah. So if you have something that you love to do outside of cycling, um, you know, whatever you might've studied in school, or maybe it's a passion that you have for a future, uh, we want to be able to implement that and help you implement that for your future off the bike. Uh, and one way that we do that is we have each athlete who's here, um, promise to give back two hours a week to their area of advocacy. So I love this. I love <laughs> this part of the home stretch. It's wonderful. I mean, so you're, you're eliminating a massive financial barrier for a lot of female athletes. And I just want to step back a second here and explain that, um, the home stretch is in Tucson, Arizona. And part of the reason Tucson is such an important place for athletes to come train is it's really warm year round. And there's a lot of really good resources here for training. So for athletes like myself, I live in Connecticut Um, And other athletes live places where in North America it's really cold during the winter and it makes it extremely difficult to get the training that you need so that you have a solid foundation for your race season. Um, And that's why Tucson is kind of a training mecca here. And that's, that's part of the reason that, Catherine, that you were having people call you in the first place. Like, hey, I need to come to Tucson to train, right? Right. Um, so that, that's part of the reason that this is, this location is so, um, beneficial for, for athletes, but I just love this aspect of it that yes, there's, you're eliminating this financial barrier. You're creating an opportunity for athletes to come and get the training they need, but it's not just, you know, again, it's, it's still about giving back. Mm -hmm. It's, It's about giving back on all levels. I just love that part of it. Thank you. Thank you. And I think there, the more we think about that give back part, I know as, we endurance athletes tend to be, you know, very motivated and driven and, and yes, of course, focused on our sport. But I think as human beings, there is that part of us where we do want to connect in some way with the world and, you know, to, to sit down and talk with someone about, Hey, what are you passionate about off the bike? Right. Do you, you know, enjoy working with kids or animals or elderly, or do you want to pick up, you know, litter removal on the side of the street? Great. Whatever it is that you want to do, um, that you feel connected to or passionate about, we can help you find what's local here in Tucson. So you can connect directly with these foundations. And the whole thing with, you know, we sat down and 
talked for a long time. What's the right amount of time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because these athletes are here to train, which, and we know that the harder you train, the harder you need to recover. <laughs> so <laughs> true. This is true. <laughs> Remember that folks. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So saying something like, oh, we need you to give back two hours a day. Oh my gosh. That then it almost becomes a part-time or quarter-time job. So that's not right. But I know from being a pro cyclist myself, there's definitely two hours in a week where I could focus my attention on something else. And other than, you know, my iPhone. (laughs) That would be a really good idea for everybody if I were able to put that down for a little bit. So, um, you know, something where the athletes can feel good and empowered, but also not feel that they have to fulfill an obligation of something that, you know, is too much for them to handle while they're training. For sure. And I I, I think for all of us, having something that we feel connected to that brings meaning to what we do, it brings a more meaningful dimension of what we're doing is super important. And I think that taking time two hours a week, even if you're not at the home stretch, right, right. you know, at, just at home doing something that you feel is going to give you a sense of purpose and a sense of connection and giving back and meaning. These are all things that I think everybody searches for in their lives. And so, you know, I love how, um, it's something that can actually, I think, complement a training plan, right? Because yes. you're taking time out for other people and, and that in and of itself can be really fulfilling And I think when people are fulfilled and happy, they're going to be healthier. They're going to train better. They're going to get better quality training, which is going to lead to a better season. So, I mean, and all of this is just a win-win-win, right? Because the athletes come in, they have this great place to train, but it's also, you know, it's not like they're just mooching off from Tucson. They're here and they're giving back and they're providing um, amazing role models for up and coming cyclists. Um, I'm just going to throw out, I know you work with a group called El Grupo mm-hmm. here in town. I'd love to hear more about what they do. Cause I know some of the athletes here are giving back through El Grupo. Yes. Is that right? Yes, correct. So El Grupo is this wonderful organization in Tucson that empowers kids through bikes. So whether kids want to work out for fitness or they want to get into racing, El Grupo is the leader in this capacity of, of helping these kids. Cause as we know, cycling is a sport that crosses some economic boundaries. You know, it's, it's expensive, but there are enough donations that happen within El Grupo that these all kids are able and welcome to ride bikes that are provided by El Grupo. So it's awesome. It's awesome. And I've worked with them. They helped me get back on my feet too, when I was going through changes in life and I worked for El Grupo for a year. And so I continue on with them on a volunteer basis. And, um, right now, for example, at the home stretch, we have two athletes, Aaliyah and Brad, who are going down this afternoon to ride with the kids on their Wednesday afternoon workout and to be there, you know, to interact with them. And, and that's so cool. Can you imagine being a teenager and seeing a couple pro athletes, you know, show up on your ride to chat with you and and encourage you, teach you, you know, that's, that's great. Plus Aaliyah, one of our athletes, she's 19. She's just aged out of juniors. Mm -hmm. So she's very close to them in age, but yet has so much, so much experience that this is that wonderful collective give back and move forward together mentalities. And what I've even experienced and observed here myself, and I I haven't even been here that long, but um, just within the house, when we're making breakfast or coffee or, you know, we're rolling out for rides together, there is so much mentorship going on, you know, um, 
the older, more experienced writers, you know, chatting up the younger writers when they have questions, anything that's going wrong, whether it's, you know, something wonky with the bike, you know, giving them pro tips on how to manage and how to troubleshoot the bike or, you know, everything from from equipment management to training tips to, you know, <laughs> how to deal with all the mental and emotional <laughs> challenges that we face. So it's really cool because it's, it's actually, it's bringing athletes together in a really positive environment where, um, even in, in the aspects that aren't structured, give back time, you know, your, your two hour time slots, there's a lot of giving back going on just every single day. I, and I'm so amazed at how natural that's been. It's not like we put on this hat of today, I'm going to be a mentor (laughs) and you will listen to everything I say. It's the opposite. It's just this natural progression of everybody teaching each other something on a most natural basis. I love it. It is, it's pretty amazing. And that whole idea that, yes, we did, you know, and we have this structure structured on the website and the application where, yes, we will give the first dibs, so to speak, to the pro women who are at the pro level and making that terrible salary, <laughs> right? right? Yes. Yes. You get the first dibs on the spots here. But if we have a month or a week or whatever time there, where there's a vacancy and an opening, we will absolutely take the elites that are at that cusp of turning pro. Mm-hmm. And that's what we have going on this month. We have a couple elites here who are really striving and they're, they're so close. We're talking about cat one, two women who have already made either junior national teams or they're riding with an elite domestic team and they're right there. And how great is it that the pros and the elites can learn from each other in terms of what what it means for our whole sport to move forward that way. Yeah. Yeah. And for everyone listening, a lot of you probably follow women's cycling, but even for those who don't, there's this there's there's really a, a misconception that, you know, as soon as you hear professional athlete, you know, everybody's minds jump to, you know, NBA, NFL, huge salaries, lots of bling. Um, but for most endurance athletes, that's not the case. And it's certainly not the case for female athletes. And although professional cyclists, I'll take that as our example right now, although professional cyclists do make a salary, it's usually, as Catherine mentioned, below the poverty line. But in addition to that, there's a lot of out-of-pocket costs that come with being a professional athlete. And most teams aren't going to cover all of the out-of-pocket training expenses. And like we were talking about uh, winter training, needing to go someplace warm. Um, It's not every team that's going to pay for all of their riders to go someplace warm for the entire winter. I mean, we do see winter team training camps um, for teams, but those are usually a week to two weeks long, and then right. the riders go back home. So it, there's a lot there's a lot of out-of-pocket costs that go with this. So even if an athlete is getting paid a decent salary, and decent is a very relative term here, let's just make that really clear. <laughs> let's say the poverty line in the U.S. is it's around 16000 maybe a bit above, but it's mm-hmm. between sixteen dollars and $17,000. That's the U.S. poverty line. Right. And when we're saying women are making so much less than that in cycling... There you go. Right. It's the vast majority of professional female cyclists are making well below that. Mm-hmm. And you add to that, you know, the travel costs and the training costs, and most people are paying their own coach. And, you know, there's a lot of things, you know, you don't necessarily have a pro mechanic following you around every day. So you've got equipment upkeep. Um, so all of these things contribute to making making it really difficult to make ends meet. And so um, having having an organization like this that's going to help address that core issue is amazing. But then you look at, you know, the pros 
they are getting some money, but then you take that step back to the elites who are trying to make the leap to the pros, and it's even harder because they're not even making a salary, and they're still facing all of these out-of-pocket costs, and right. they're trying to they're they are trying to train at the level that the pros are training so that they can get to that level, right. and that's that's even harder. So this is a really amazing intermediary step that you're providing for these athletes to to get to where they want to go. Yes, and I love that you say intermediary step because that's true. What we are trying very hard to avoid is being a Band-Aid solution. Right. You know, the whole... This, I always joke about this, but I would love to be completely irrelevant and obsolete someday. <laughs> it would be so great if this house could be allocated towards something else in the future because it's no longer needed yeah. as a bridge of salary equity in right. some way, right? So what we're trying to do behind the scenes, and hopefully something I can focus on more now that I'm retired from racing, mm-hmm. we need that salary level at the women's, you know, in women's pro cycling um, to have at least at the very minimum, a base salary mm-hmm. because the men do, the men have roughly 35,000 euro at the top level of men's racing. That's the base base salary. So they're not allowed to be paid less than they that. They are not allowed to be paid less than 35,000 euro, which is more here. Which I'm is bad a at math. long way from <laughs> below poverty it's line. It's way, way <laughs> far away. Um, and if you think about it, you know, even like say Major League Baseball, they have base salaries at their different levels, and that's that's the same idea that we need in cycling too. But mm-hmm. at the very minimum, yes, we need the women to have the equal base salary as a man at that top level. So right now, even at the top world tour level right. of racing, where women are still now doing, or they're 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 doing many of the same races as the men, mm-hmm. and and there's still no base salary. So as you can imagine, the cycle that creates is the women are often taken advantage of. You yeah. know, oh, well, if you want to ride on this team, great, but uh, we're only going to pay you $10,000. Right. You know, and a man is making three point five times yeah. more than that. <laughs> yeah. So we have to change that. Um, and it, we can't just sit here, you know, saying, oh, yeah, the salary inequity is such a bummer and this will help. No, we have to change what's broken. Mm-hmm. And what I'm truly hoping will stem from that is that for all the other areas in life where there is also salary inequity between men and women, they can look to women cycling eventually and say, hey, Here's how they cleaned it up. Here's how they did it. Let's implement the same structure. Right. I would love to be copycatted. That would be, I will never say that as a writer, but in terms of social activism, I right. hope it goes that way. Right? Yes. Everybody do this. It'd be great. So that's some, something that we really have to make happen because imagine that. Imagine if women at the sport were making the same as the men, then what the home stretch could focus on would be just the elites mm-hmm. and getting the elites, helping them, you know, lessen their struggle. Right. Uh, they might not be pro yet, but they're almost there. Mm-hmm. I would love to just help that group knowing yeah. that they have equality that they're striving toward. Right. That once they get to the pro ranks, they're going to have everything they need to be successful. Right. Because I'm all for struggle. Whenever <laughs> we take on something, you know, it's one thing when you're, when you first start a sport, any sport, you're climbing up the ranks. You're seeing how it might be. And, I, you know, pick a sport, but you're going to have the same thing where there is um, a wonderful essence of struggle to see how good you can be. Yeah. And that's okay. And we all have to put in those hours. So it's not like I'm trying to eradicate any of that. Let struggle be struggle. Right. But inequality and struggle are very different. Yes. <laughs> you know, they should not coexist. Yes. In any regard. So that is something that I think we're we're hoping to work toward. And how great when women 
come into this program, and Brad, we currently have a male <laughs> residing here who's wonderful. When people come into this program and they now are empowered to just be vocal about, well, yeah, okay, well, part of the reason I'm at the home stretch is not just for the great training Tucson has to offer, mm-hmm. but because there's a flaw in the system of equality that we need to fix, and I'm proud to be part of that. Right. You know? And so you were mentioning earlier half of the year is devoted to providing um, – a home base for athletes who need to train here and they, they can't afford to do it elsewhere. And then the other half of the year you were talking about, um, I just want to touch back on this again, because if anybody's listening and you, and you're thinking about doing a training camp or any kind of endurance sports related event, um, coming out and using the home stretch as your venue is not only going to, well, let me just say for the record, the venue is (laughs) amazing, but not only do you have an amazing venue, but you're supporting everything that Catherine is talking about right now. You're supporting this mission to make home stretch obsolete, which I agree with her. That would be amazing. Um, but also, you know, you're in the meantime, you're supporting these remarkable athletes who, who could very well be the next, you know, world, world's best. And they just need that little extra help. So do you want to talk a little bit more about kind of what's available for people? Absolutely. And uh, yes, because we have this sports centered, you know, philosophy here, that's great. But you also don't have to be involved with sports. There you go. So, uh, for example, um, you know, a lot of our advertisement right now is word of mouth mm-hmm. as we gain more exposure. Fantastic. We actually had a botanist reach out to us and say, you know, I know a group of people who would like to come there in August during the monsoon season Interesting. to see Tucson in the, the, you know, the deluge of rain that happens in August. And so we might be able to bring out a group of botanists. And I said, well, fantastic. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> fantastic. That is what we need, you know? And I'm thinking of like Matt Damon's role in uh, Martian, yeah. you know, he, he saved the world. Botanists are awesome. Botanists are you know? awesome. So, how, but how great that somebody who's not necessarily a cyclist saw the way the home stretch and, and equality can work together. And they, ha- they have a way of doing that, you know, and think of other great things that happen here, like uh, rock climbing or astronomy, you oh, know, the yeah. desert is known for these things far beyond cycling. Yeah. Every time I write up Mount Lemmon, there's signs for the science tour at U of A. Yes. And I keep thinking, man, that sounds super cool. I'm going to come up here and check out the geology with the science tour. Right? (laughs) Right. So what we're hoping is we can expand the horizons of people beyond the sports um, world and say, oh, I'd love to go to Tucson. Or even that random person who's out there says, you know what? I've got a family of five and we got to go on vacation somewhere. Okay. Awesome. Come here. Right. So how (laughs) many Airbnbs do you know that are supporting a cause this amazing that are offering you a tax deductible fee? So if, if you're thinking about an Airbnb, be in Tucson, whether it's for an event or personally, maybe think about the home stretch because you can deduct that expense. Yes. And you'll be supporting an amazing cause. That is great. And it, we are similar to a hotel, but you're going to have to make your own bed. And <laughs> you're going to have to cook your own breakfast. But we have the kitchens and, you know, the linens available to you. <laughs> and let me tell you guys, the beds are super comfortable. Yay. I have not slept so well in so long. This is, it's amazing here. So the that amenities are incredible. So You've to hear. put together just a phenomenal venue here, Catherine. I have to really, Thank you. hats off. Thank you, Amber. And I will say, right, we currently have six beds beds and three pull-out couches that are Mm -hmm. available. So, you know, we can just make it comfortable for for whoever might be on their way here. Um, And our website, too, homestretchfoundation.org. 
.org, saying it twice, because sometimes <laughs> we forget the .org part, but um, it can give you more details on all of this. And there's also that open calendar that says, you know, between June and December, um, all you have to do is contact us and we can solidify a date and mm-hmm. fantastic. Uh, I will also say this, we've had a couple, since this is our first year, you yeah. know, we, we yeah. have um, fewer stories to share right now, but so far they've been great. We've discovered that there's a niche amongst the triathlon community. Uh-huh. Uh, as many people know, Ironman Kona, the big world championships, that happens in October. And it's a very hot race. A little bit. A little bit hot. <laughs> so there are a lot of athletes who want to come someplace warm to train as heat acclimation. Right. So we are currently hosting two camps here in the fall, in August and September. Now, I don't host the camps. It's camps that bring their camps here. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I just give them keys. <laughs> so, you know, they come here and they've they've found that in a time when a lot of people might not be thinking of Tucson as a destination, say mm-hmm. in August right. or in early September when it's still hot, it actually serves a great purpose yeah. to, uh, you know, these niche markets that yeah. we're finding. So That's amazing. And I'm sure you're going to find more, but you guys heard it here first. Heat acclimation in Tucson. <laughs> <laughs> Contact Home Stretch Foundation. The website is the home. It's homestretchfoundation.org. Correct. Not the. So yep. homestretchfoundation.org. And it's also on social media at homestretchfdn. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, it's the shortened foundation. So homestretchfdn. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so homestretchfdn. No spaces, no capitals. Um, you guys can follow along on Twitter and see some of the pictures of the athletes here and, and kind of what life is like here at the homestretch. It's really good. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> There's a lot of laughs. There's we're all sleeping really, really well, getting tons of really great training, and it's everything an, an athlete could ask for. So, thank you, Catherine, for putting it all together. Thank you, Amber. <laughs> it's so great to have you here. Thank you for being a stretchy. <laughs> That's right. So our nicknames here as as being home stretchers, um, we we call each other the stretchies. So <laughs> now you're all in the inside loop. <laughs> Love it. Uh, so you. You are recently retired from pro cycling, is that right? Yes, I am. I almost put on like an old person accent to answer that, but I refrained. <laughs> yes. Except yes. Let me get my cane. <laughs> so what has that trans- transition been like for you? Um, well, I can tell you that so far, since I've been retired about a month now, um, it's been uh, really Great, because the home stretch has kept me busy, and it's mm-hmm. helped me realign that passion, you know, that we have as athletes. We we better put that somewhere when right. we retire. There's a lot of drive. <laughs> That's right. There's a lot of drive. <laughs> so this is, you know, this is the vehicle of mm-hmm. that drive now. And of course, I still, I still keep in shape so that I have the ability to go out on rides with the stretchies, right? You know, and show them the great routes and just for for fitness sake. But um, so it's it's been great and I'm still connected with our Tucson local cycling community. You hear these stories sometimes of someone retiring from pro cycling and you never hear of them again and they never touch a bicycle and they yeah. will just, you know, maybe take up knitting, but they're they're done. And I'm not done that way. Mm-hmm. I still love the sport. That's a good thing. And so it, I feel like the transition has been okay. It's a little jarring sometimes to be like, oh, did I miss a workout? Oh, wait, no, I don't have to do that, you know? <laughs> I don't have to do intervals. I, I can just ride that. for fun. And start, I can go to the coffee shop. Wee, that is the workout, you know? So uh, that part is, is good. Knock on wood, the transition's been smooth so far. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah, I might retire from the bike in terms of racing, but I'm not retired from cycling on a bicycle. Right. I mean, I would hope, I, I certainly hope for me that cycling is something I do as long as I live. Yes. It's, it's one of those sports that, you know, one, one can, you know, God willing, <laughs> keep on going on. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I know for a lot of athletes that transition out of full-time structured competitive racing is really hard. I'm glad you bring that up. That's another thing that the home stretch wants the pro athletes to know is that mm-hmm. we're here to help you make that transition nice. as well. So not only in terms of educating you on anything that you might need, um, maybe it's connections to what you want to do next, or if you don't know what you want to do next, come to us so we can, you know, connect you with the people who can help. Fantastic. That's, that's something that's important. We don't want anyone leaving this sport feeling like I'm lost. I don't know what to do or where to go. Right. Come here. Yeah. And we'll help. Yeah. This is one of those things I think, um, it, it's a really difficult thing to articulate or demonstrate, but as athletes, you know, we come into the sport and, and our goal is we want to just, we just want to race bikes, but in order to race bikes, you have to learn a whole lot of peripheral skills around, um, just racing in order to be successful as a professional athlete, mm-hmm. because there's so many more dimensions to it than that. You're managing sponsor relationships, you're negotiating contracts for yourself. Well, most of us are not all of us can afford an agent, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but you know, you, you're, you're managing logistics, you're managing travel logistics You're th- There's so much, um, that's, that's in addition to the racing of the bicycles and those skills that we learn are actually really transferable to other roles in life yes. and other careers, but we don't walk out of the sport with this piece of paper saying, Hey, you know, I have executive, executive level team management skills, you know, <laughs> or like I'm a master of working together with people that, you know, have, have crazy different personalities. Yeah. Um, these are all things that are incredibly valuable to employers, but not always easy to articulate or, or prove until you're, you're in the job. Exactly. And I think a really hard thing for athletes is, um, undervaluing that we undervalue it in ourselves. Um, because we, you know, it's not like we have a degree in bike racing, you know, we don't have a diploma that says, you know, you have the, these specific skills, um, but the skills are there. And so it's really easy for athletes to kind of walk out of the sport thinking, geez, all I did was race bikes, but that's not actually true. You did Mm -hmm. so much more than that. Yes, absolutely. I can't agree more. That's so, (laughs) it is so true. And that sense of networking that we can do amongst not just the athletes in the sport, but those who have been out of the sport or who follow the sport that do want to help Mm -hmm. and say, I recognize your skill set. We need to put that to use. Right. Here is how we can help do that. And the amount of people that have, have reached out to me just in, in terms of the home stretch, it's they want to know about these athletes. They want to create those those bridges to the That's next step. Great. So it's an amazing thing. And how great is it that the majority of our cyclists in the women's peloton, so many of them have already, you know, they've already bagged a collegiate degree. Yeah, They're like, right. degree, degree. Yeah. You know. <laughs> so they've done so much. I can't... I, I can count, you know, at least 20 people who have master's degrees in the pro peloton of women. Yeah. Like, these are some highly educated, amazing Ivy League, you know, whether it's Ivy League or or community college, it doesn't matter. The fact is that these women are so highly educated. Right. 
And there's a great place in the world to put all of your passion and all of your education and let us help you get there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing to me how many really highly intelligent women gravitate towards cycling. And from the outside in, if you're not familiar with the sport, it it doesn't really make a lot of sense. But once you get to know the sport a little bit, it's really, I think it was Olivia Dillon that at one point said it's a thinking men's sport, you know, because you, you, there's so much there's so much to the strategy and the tactics and you, you actually have to think a lot and be pretty smart about how you use your energy in the race. And it's, um, and people often use the analogy of chess. It's like chess. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that that's something that often gets lost. Um, you know, when somebody's just looking at a bike race for the first time, it's like anything else. You have to learn a little bit about it to appreciate the subtleties, but certainly having some brains in your head is going to help. <laughs> that, was, that was a segue that could go so many directions. That's true. That is true. Don't fall on your head. Keep the brains in Keep the brains. The brains <laughs> well, that actually brings up a good point. You have come back from a serious traumatic brain injury. Um, and let me just say, what you, I mean, un, understanding as a friend and fellow cyclist what you've come through and to see what you're doing now is just incredible. So I tip my hat to you Aww. in great admiration. Um, and and I I think it'd be really wonderful and beneficial for some people to hear kind of what what you've gone through to get here. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Where do we start with that? I know. Right? <laughs> I'll start with the brain injury part, which happened last April. So in April of 2016, um, and I was in a race and, Mm -hmm. uh, the short story was that the woman right in front of me crashed and I was the first person launched into the air and I fell on my head. I don't remember any of that. So this is what I'm told, but, uh, it was a pretty serious TBI where my skull was broken twice and, you know, also my collarbone, but that seems like an afterthought at this (laughs) Oh, that thing. (laughs) But, uh, (laughs) right. And then as it is with brain injuries, you don't understand the severity of it immediately. You have to wait and see what comes up. Of course, there is the immediacy of, are you going to make it through the next 24 hours? You know, and this happened at a UCI race down in Mexico and the hospitals and the doctors there took wonderful care of me. I was eventually airlifted to back to Tucson. Mm -hmm. So a total of about three weeks in the hospital and, you know, crossing my fingers. Well, I mean, I, I didn't know much at that time. So I think other people were crossing their fingers for me, but um, for sure. You know, I I feel very fortunate that I made it through, and the the skull was able to heal, um, and the brain did a pretty darn good job in the recovery process. But there are still things, um, even to this day, even though I have my memory, as far mm-hmm. as I know, unless somebody <laughs> approaches me someday and it's like. <laughs> remember me from sixth grade? And I'm like, I have no idea who you are. So you shouldn't say this because now you're just letting people know that they can totally mess with you. Like, hey, we're best friends. Don't you remember? <laughs> That's so true. Oh, no. That is so true. I, I have some friend bodyguards who will stick up for me. I know, like, I know. Wait a minute. You don't know that person. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I think I'm okay. I still have the ability to reason and think and create. All of that is good. If anything, there's um, there are days where I feel the uh, the lingering element can sometimes be exhaustion mm-hmm. and not in a physical way. Cause I was even able to race again, right. but just sometimes I, I'm really tired at the end of a day in a diff- 
different way. Yeah. Like my brain's been thinking all day yeah. <laughs> and it needs to turn off, yeah. you know, and, and take some time to just, you know, peacefully do nothing for a little while. And mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's an interesting thing for somebody who's always been multitasking and going 16 different ways at once. And that feels comfortable. And all of a sudden there's like, no, you need to rest now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's, that's gotta be a really hard thing to train yourself to be like, okay with, okay, now I'm going to do nothing. Exactly. And thank God I love watching movies right. because that really helps. I can turn, turn on the TV or, um, I mean, I love reading, but sometimes you just need to sit there and, you know, even be at a level of not thinking in a different way. Mm-hmm. So, um, which is interesting because I actually love movies that make me think. But anyway, right. you know, being able to have time to myself um, and that helps me stay focused on what I love to do you know, the next day when I wake up again, I have that energy back. Yeah. But it did, it did take adjusting and it probably still will for a little bit, but mm-hmm. so far so good. Yeah. I think for a lot of people who, who deal with TBIs and of course there's all kinds of different grades of severity with this, but in the end, I mean, you hit your head, your brain is, it's some soft, squishy stuff, right? And it's yes. going to hit against the hard surface of the inner skull and I mean, even if you don't crack your skull, but you did, so we know that that was yes. pretty darn severe. Not once, but twice, because I am an Man. overachiever. <laughs> right? you're not, you don't half-ass anything. That's right. If I'm going to hit my head, I'm going to hit it twice. Oh my gosh. <laughs> crack, crack. We so. are so glad that you're still here hey, in the first you. place and doing thank so you. well. But yeah, I think that this is a really hard thing because, <clears throat> you know, if somebody breaks an ankle or an arm, you have a cast. Yep. And, you know, bones are pretty straightforward, six to eight weeks, and you're good. And the the injury is visible. Yes. It's visible and it's measurable. You can check it with an x-ray to see how the healing is going. Um, and so many people have been through it. And when you're walking around your th- with your cast, everyone can see, oh, you have an injury. They're careful around you. Yeah. Um, they're very understanding if you need to tile things back a little bit, but when you have an injury that isn't visible to you or to anyone else, yep. and that injury is to your brain, which is your your entire perception, which is your whole reality, yep. I mean, that that's a whole different level of challenge. You're right. And I'm speaking to you where I'm about eight months out mm-hmm. or maybe nine months out from that accident, and I can already see the difference of where I was in the start of this recovery and where I am now. So I know I'm not even fully through, you know, the cycle of all the different changes that can come from a brain injury. And you're absolutely right. People don't know. And, and they assume, you know, okay, well, if you're walking and talking and riding your bike, you must be a hundred percent back to it. And I don't think that's always, you know, the case. Absolutely not. And there's a lot of vulnerability too. Um, you know, that we don't let everybody see, you know, so there might be more in there. I might not just be tired all the time, but there are times where I might need to have more time to myself just to even collect my bearings Mm -hmm. a little bit. Yeah. And I think, and, but it's also interesting with uh, brain injuries, how, because there are so many types of concussions and, uh, you know, concussion, brain injury, there are so many different styles of hitting your head (laughs) and we need to have a better understanding I think of all of those as as athletes and in society so we understand that um, a concussion isn't just where you you bonk your head and you get a little bit dizzy and then you're okay in a few weeks it's kind of the idea you have when you're growing up you know but um, there are so many variables 
that are there and everybody's is different. And I, yeah, we do have to put that out there. Yeah. I mean, not that long ago it was like, Oh, did you black out? No. Okay. You're fine. Right. And now we know even the small hits, even the small hits are starting where there's the research is showing there's a cumulative effect and we forget that that soft, squishy little brain in there, you know, it's, it's a delicate thing. And and you brought up the term vulnerability and I want to come back to that because I think that's a really important issue. Um, especially when it comes to brain injury, but also across the board, I think for athletes and their experience, because there's this, there's this social norm that if you're going to be a top level athlete, you've just got to be hard as nails, you know, and, and you don't complain, you, you, you deal with pain and you have a high threshold for pain. And that's part of, part of what we take pride in as athletes is, you know, we can suffer better than the rest of them. Yeah. But at the same time, that becomes, you know, while that can be part of what makes us successful, it can then in some cases be your worst enemy. Because sometimes, like when you're going through an injury, especially one that nobody can see, and you are feeling really alone and vulnerable, um, there's the sense that, I just got to be tougher and I don't want to complain and I don't want to show weakness because Mm -hmm. I want to be the strong athlete that everybody thinks that I am. But I think the reality is very far from that. I think most of us are actually really vulnerable. Yes. Yes. I agree with that. And I've, I can attest to that because I did put some vulnerability out there to the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bicycling magazine did an article that, um, was scheduled to come out, uh, you know, after my, my brain injury, but you know, no one had even known that that had happened yet. I mean, it was just, it was bizarre to hit my head so hard and have a brain injury and then have this article come out that had to do with my life before the brain injury. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there's a lot of vulnerability of kind of putting my personal story out there. And I've been through some trials and tribulations as we all have, Yeah. yeah. but to actually, you know, put that out there. Cause I think a lot of people were under the notion that you know, from um, half the road and women's equality and fighting for the Tour de France and all of these things that seem very strong and powerful and, you know, all about change and progress and really great stuff. But there is such a deep personal side effect that went with all of that, you know, when you're putting yourself out there to make those changes publicly, but nobody knows what's going on in your private life. You know, that was really hard to talk about that stuff. But when Bicycling Magazine came around and said, hey, how's it been being an activist? And how's, you know, how are the past two years have been? You've accomplished things. How has the journey been? And I think our society wants you to say, it's been great. Everything's awesome. I gave 100% and I won. You know, but the reality was I got to this point. Where I'm like, I can't say that. I can't just say all of these things are happy and sunshine because there was so much difficulty and detrimental stuff that was going on while that was happening. And we need to be honest about that. We need to show that there's a lot of vulnerability, you know, to all of us as yeah. humans. Yeah. And, um, and this is before I even fell on my head, you know, right. so, so for people who maybe haven't read that article, first of all, go find it and read it. Cause it's amazing. Um, and it is in bicycling magazine. Probably if you just Google Catherine Bertine and bicycling magazine, it'll come up, but, um, you were dealing with some really severe depression there for a while. Yeah. And that's always a, an interesting term. Another term we need better clarification on yeah. in our society because I had been through, um, a really traumatic divorce. Mm -hmm. And I know that, yes, of course, we know that divorce happens a lot in this country, but sometimes it's not traumatic and sometimes it can be. And there's so many different degrees of that. And I was going through something that was really rough and really difficult. And, um, but yet I couldn't talk about any of that publicly. I had to put on this face of like, yeah, Hey, here's the film and the activism and the tour de France and all of the stuff that we were doing. So I was leading almost two separate realities of, 
such progress and then such, you know, detrimental stuff going on in my life. And so it really put me in this place, which I refer to as situational depression, because mm-hmm. it was the situation that put me in this this deep, dark state, yeah. as opposed to the clinical side of depression or the chemical imbalance right. of depression, which are very different. There are some people who are born with the clinical yeah. and, um, you know, and chemistry imbalance side yes. of depression, right? So that's very different than, than what I have had and was struggling with. Mm-hmm. But I also think that, that that is something that every human, every, every human can go through a situational depression in their life. Because something in this world, something really crappy and bad and terrible can happen to yeah. any human being. And if we have less of this stigma of, oh no, we always have to be up and smiling and we've all got our stuff together. Yeah. <laughs> Can I say S? You know? yeah. <laughs> we totally all have fine. our shit together <laughs> because as humans, there's going to come a time where we don't always have our shit together. Something yeah. bad happens and we need to deal with it. And I wonder if it would empower us more and connect us more if we were able to be a little bit vulnerable and just say, Hey, you know what? I'm actually going through a really hard time. Um, and you know, eventually I'll be okay, but I'm going through a really hard time right now. That might heal us more than saying everything's great. Everything's fine. Yeah. I'm okay because that's, what's going to keep us in the hole. Right. And somebody said to me recently, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to be able to attribute this quote properly, but the most, sometimes when you're going through something really difficult, the most powerful two words you can hear are me too. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's not even, you know, most of us, I think as athletes, we don't want to be the weak one. And we also don't want to be a burden to, especially as women, we don't want to be a burden to those around us. So if, if you're going through a hard time, it's like, well, yeah, I could tell people that I'm going through this hard time, but I don't want them to think that, you know, I'm asking them for anything or, you know, I don't want to burden them with my problems because it's not their problem. And everyone around me, especially with social media, looks like they have their shit together and everybody around me is, is doing fine. And I don't want to be the one that's going to rain on the parade, or I don't want to be the one that's going to drag everyone down. Um, and yet the moment you, you open up and the moment that you tell your story and, and you say, Hey, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm actually not okay right now. Yeah. Um, suddenly you become a safe person for other people to say, oh my gosh, me too. Yes. Oh, that is so true. And I can attest to the fact that once the Bicycling Magazine article came out, I was receiving emails from total strangers that that said almost the same thing. They were like, thank you for sharing that you are going through difficult things because now I don't feel so alone. Yeah. Or I've thought, you know, of of what you've thought about, you know, and they, it's just, that really drove it home for me that, okay, maybe vulnerability is okay. Yeah. That there are people who are connected, connecting with me, not because I've accomplished something, right? but because I'm a human being who's been through some crappy shit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There is, there is true strength and vulnerability. And I think it's something that we so, we forget about it, we gloss over it, and, and we get swept up in all of these cultural norms. Again, you know, yeah. the, the tough athlete, you know, you suffer through it, you suffer through it, and you don't complain, and you, you know, you don't want to show weakness. Right. Um, but we, there is there is no weakness in being vulnerable and being human. If anything else, it demonstrates more strength, because if yes. everything really were just rainbows and puffy clouds, and everything's <laughs> hunky-dory, and you're having all this success, well, that's one thing, but if you are down in the trenches on a day-to-day basis, and you're still managing to affect all of this great positive change. I mean, to me, that's 
that takes so much more strength and is so much more impressive. And not that that's the goal to be impressive, but <laughs> you know, it, there's a depth to that, that, that is missing when we don't share the whole story. And I'm so glad that you, you took that step, that courageous step to share your story because thank you. Obvi- well, thank you. And it's obvious. I mean, it was profoundly, it had a profound effect on me. And I, I mean, obviously other people who are reaching out to you and saying, Hey, if somebody like you, who's who's competing at the top of the sport, you know, and and it wasn't like your situational depression precipitated the end of your career. I mean, you correct. came back. You you correct. You came back from that, and then you had a TBI, and then you came back from that, and you still finished off a, pro, a full professional season, and and you know you decided to retire on your own terms, and still you're hitting the ground running with the <laughs> stretch foundation with my feet. I'm hitting the ground with right. my feet this time. <laughs> <laughs> we like that part. <laughs> oh my gosh, we laugh a lot. This yes, we fun. do. <laughs> uh, yeah, so far with my feet, all is well there. But no, thank you. Thank you for that because that's, you know, first of all, you've been there for me through this as a friend, which is something I want the audience to know. <laughs> that when I was going through, you know, the personal storm of everything that, you know, encompassed my life during that time of, of divorce and, and I won't go into those details because it really, you know what, it doesn't matter because everybody who goes through something that's difficult will always have different details. Yeah. Um, but some people can just gloss over it and be like, oh no, no. Yeah. It's just, you know, just something difficult. I'll be okay. But those difficult things that we go through that really put us down in the trenches, you know, that's what I was going through and you knew that it wasn't okay. Yeah. And you never said anything like, oh, buck up. (laughs) You'll get through it. Back on the horse. Or the worst thing you can ever say to someone is like, oh, well, you know, you're not alone. Everybody goes through this. And like, well, don't say it in that tone. (laughs) Right. Right. It doesn't make it any less difficult or meaningful to what, to your experience, the fact that other people go through it. It's more like, you know what we have, we humans, we do all go through this. How can we help? Or how can we, you know, connect? Um, rather than the dismissive element, you know, and, and so to surround yourself with some good people and good friends. And I remember our mutual friend, Lauren Hall, she had always said, you know, it's really good to have a small core of close friends that you can lean on. And especially in this day and age when everybody thinks, oh, well, I've got 5,000 Facebook (laughs) friends. I'm good. I'm all set. Right. (laughs) No, actually you're more all set if you have two or three close friends or even one, whatever it is, but a small circle where you can be your most vulnerable and say, hey, something really difficult's going on yeah. and I need your help. You know, that's, you got me through that. Lauren got me through that. And as you have been there for me through many, many highs and lows. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why we can laugh about right. it, right? <laughs> oh, it's so but that's, true. you know, the, the point is you, you, you can get through it. And you're right. I think, um, classic saying it takes a village yes and when you're when you're coming up through sport there are so many things that change from year to year you know you're changing year to year as an athlete but your sponsors are changing maybe your team is changing um there's a lot of instability but when you find those people that you connect with and you know you can really lean on um and be that person for other people you know, don't be afraid to be that person for other people. Right. And sometimes, you know, if you see someone struggling, you know, just, just to say like, Hey, 
are you are you really doing okay? You know what you know what's going yes. on because we yep. all have to understand. You know somebody else mentioned. I'm I'm throwing all these quotes out here that I can't attribute properly, but no, they're they're right. The, You're right. <laughs> these quotes are right. They're good, but yep. you know the, with social media, it's exceptionally hard because somebody said you're comparing your own behind the scenes with everyone else's highlight reel. Yes. So true. And we don't always see what's going on behind the scenes. And it's not that you need to go air your dirty laundry to the whole wide world, but to, 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 to share with the people that you know around you or to be, to be, um, to feel safe enough Mm -hmm. to, to be vulnerable when you need to be, because we all need to be sometimes. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you want to try your own social media experiment, if you do have the ability to show a tiny bit of vulnerability, even if it's something like, oh, I didn't have such a good day today. I'm okay, but man, sometimes, sometimes days are hard, you know, (laughs) something like that. I bet you'll receive more likes on something like that than if you post happy sunshine day, everything's great. You know, try it. You I know that that element of vulnerability does connect us all, whether it's friends, whether it's strangers, you know, there's something to it. And Mm -hmm. hopefully we can subtract what we consider, you know, the highlight reel, or we can at least acknowledge that it's great to put out highlights now and then, but your whole life does not have to be that. No, it's not a realistic It should not be that. No. (laughs) Yeah. That's actually the scariest thing to see. I mean, if you see someone who's just happy all the time, you know, that's, that's a little freaky. It's a little freaky. <laughs> <laughs> this coming from two weirdos, but you know. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Listen to the weirdos. We know what's up. But, uh, At least we know we're weird. And right. that's something that we should, you know. We're fully, we, we fully embrace this side of ourselves. <laughs> Except weirdness. Exactly. <laughs> oh man. Well, it's, it's so good to see you have come through all of that. I mean, and, and I want to tell you that I'm genuinely honored that I was one of the people that you chose to share these vulnerabilities with because, and, and keep that in mind too. Sometimes, um, it, it, it can be a gift to a friend to know that they're trusted enough mm-hmm. that you're willing to let them in on what's going on. And right. it's not, it's not necessarily going to be a burden. You know, you correct when you're, when you're around people who care about you and have your true interests at heart. Um, if you're having a bad day, you're not a burden. Exactly. And you can always be that person. You can always be there for somebody else who's having that bad day too. So it's never, it's this whole karma thing, you know? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And if anybody ever, you know, entrust somebody or, or opens up to somebody and perhaps that person might not be in a place where they can receive the, you know, the ability to have an open conversation about something that you're going through that's difficult, you know, take heart that not everyone is like that, that, you know, we're all at different places in different stages. And sometimes it can be a jarring thing when you finally get the, uh, the strength to open up about something difficult you're going through. Um, and if somebody doesn't respond the way that you're hoping or looking for, Mm -hmm. Uh, don't, you know, don't think that everybody will have that, you know, element to them. It, it's all a matter of, of timing and trust and friendship. And, um, I put that out there because I think we all, all have experienced that where we go to somebody who we think is going to be there and maybe they're not. Um, and it just has to do with what they might be going through in life. Right. And that's why I just treasured everything because you and Lauren were, were right there, right 
you know, honest and open and able, you were both in a place where you were able to help me with what I was going through. And that was Mm -hmm. such a beautiful gift that you gave me. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you. We're just going to have a whole gratitude fest here. Yeah, it's a big gratitude fest. We'll try not not to let it get too mushy, but (laughs) I'm almost crying. (laughs) (laughs) Except then we start laughing. (laughs) I know. I know. So on that note, come to the home stretch. It fixes everything. It does. (laughs) You'll turn your tears into laughter. That's right. That's right. Well, no, I think it's, it is, a, is a, that's actually a great way to bring it all full circle because, <laughs> you know, being, we, we talk about sport as, as this microcosm of life, right? Yep. You know, we are constantly pushing ourselves up against our own personal limitations, perceived or otherwise. Um, and in that, you know, we, we are presenting ourselves with challenges at a much more rapid pace um, than maybe we normally would encounter them in real life. Um, not that this isn't real life, but, (laughs) you know, I think what we learn in sport about facing challenges and getting through things are things that we can apply across the board, whether it's in sport or life. And, and this is one of those crux ones, which is no one's perfect. Yes. No one's perfect. No one has a perfect life. Mm -hmm. And that is okay because that is part of what makes us human. It's part of what enables us to connect. I mean, going through what you've gone through has probably given you a far greater depth of empathy for other athletes than you ever thought possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. So true. And and being able to connect with people on that level, I think, is so important. So, you know, again, I just I thank you for, for turning all of your drive into such a positive avenue here to, to, to give back to other athletes here at the home stretch. Um and, and before we, is there anything else that you want to talk about today before we wrap up? I think we have said it all. <laughs> <laughs> we are talkers, us two. No, we do. We do. I think there are probably future episodes where we can talk about different specific things. But on the whole, I mean, we got a lot in there. That yeah, was great. We did. Good job. Good job. High five. Does that, High five. Did yeah. you hear that? <laughs> did that come through on the mic? <laughs> One more time. One more. There, there we go. go. <laughs> Well, Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. It's been an absolute joy. Um, Oh, thank you, Amber. This is great. And thanks for all you are doing for this sport. The more voices you can put out there, whether weird, crazy, or sane, (laughs) the more it helps us, you know, move this sport forward. So thank you for your dedication to cycling. Oh, absolutely. And um, once again, if you want more information on the home stretch, you can apply, you can learn more about it, you can look at hosting an event there. It's homestretch.org. Homestretch Foundation. Sorry. That's okay. Oh my gosh. That's okay. Homestretchfoundation.org. We got it. All right. (laughs) Thank you, Catherine. Thanks, Amber. Thank you for listening. At Network for Advancing Athletes, we want to share with you the full spectrum of sport through the eyes of incredible women role models. Network for Advancing Athletes is a nonprofit organization. And you can support this podcast with tax-deductible donations on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash advancingathletes. As a patron, you'll get to help us decide what topics to cover and who to interview. You can even hang out with some of our guests via online hangouts. Again, that's patreon.com slash advancingathletes, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash advancingathletes. Of course, you can always learn more about NAA at our website, advancingathletes.org. We are in the process of updating our website, so please stay tuned for more coming soon. You can follow us on Twitter at NAA underscore org. That's at NAA underscore O-R-G 
and on our Facebook page, Network for Advancing Athletes. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please join us again next time.